I came from trauma, right? So I am really interested in working with people around trauma to decrease violence in the world because that's an embodied experience that I've had. So I think that our life experience shapes us. I mean, I've seen leaders all over the place, whether it's like someone whose you know, child died of cancer starts a foundation to work with families, you know, or uh, some of the survivors of the mass shootings are starting nonprofits. Going in and, and helping is a great way to actually heal from our own traumas. The problem becomes if we're not at all addressing our trauma and we're just simply wanting to address it out there, we risk, again, either burnout, self-harm, or harming others. Welcome to Commune, where each week we explore the ideas and practices that bring us together and help us live healthy and purpose-filled lives. In addition to being a podcast, Commune is also an online course platform featuring some of the world's greatest teachers. Our next course, Redefining Leadership, starts on March 4th and is now open for free signups at onecommune.com. Halakuri is one of the teachers from our leadership course, so we invited her on the show today to talk about somatic psychology, a form of psychotherapy that focuses on the embodied self. Ever since her family left war-torn Lebanon when she was a child, creative movement and self-inquiry have been tremendous sources of personal healing for Hala. Her experiences led her to develop a deep passion for understanding both the scientific and spiritual aspects of trauma. She's dedicated her life to this work, earning a BA in psychology with a minor in religion, a master's degree in counseling psychology, and today she's back in school earning a PhD in community psychology, liberation studies, and eco-psychology. Hala is also one of the creators of Off the Mat Into the World, along with Sean Korn and Suzanne Sterling, a nonprofit dedicated to utilizing the tools of yoga and somatic practices to inspire people to be conscious leaders of change. When trauma isn't resolved, we get trapped in the past, and events in our present can trigger emotions and sensations that impede our ability to function, let alone thrive or lead. But with a thoughtful, delicate balance of mind-body practices and personal reflection, we can begin to heal our traumas, leading us into a more joyful life and help others to do the same. All this and more in today's episode. I'm your host, Jeff Krasno, and welcome to Commune. My name is Hala Khoury. I teach yoga. I'm a clinician. I'm a therapist. I run a nonprofit that bridges yoga and social justice. I'm a mom. That's a lot. I do a lot. <laughs> <laughs> so you have an interesting upbringing. You were born in, or you grew up in Beirut. Yeah, well, till I was three. What was that like? So I like have memories, but I think it's because people told me about them. Like I was told that... There was a time where my dad, who was a doctor, was working at the hospital up the hill. And we were actually living in the Beka Valley in a town called Zahli. And the, during the war, the tank would come pick him up. And we'd watch the tank go up the, up the hill to the, to the hospital and, and hope it didn't get bombed on the way. Those were some of the war memories I was told, right? Memories of um, 
gunshots going off and my mom saying it was someone's birthday and those were fireworks. Um, but most of my memories are, are like of incredible food and huge feasts and the importance of family and people's sense of humor. And this is like the mid-70s or so, right? Yeah, 73 and 75, yeah. Civil War broke out and we left in 76. Do you feel that some of that trauma that you witnessed or endured as a child influenced you going forward in the decisions that you made about your career? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I don't, I don't know how conscious it was, but I always say, you know, there's a little girl in me that wants people to heal their trauma so they're not fighting with each other. I mean, the history in Lebanon is like fighting, you know, because of religious differences or political differences, land. And so it's, it's not, it's not surprising that I'm, you know, trauma, my work is in trauma, basically. Yeah. So tell me about trauma at a basic level. Like how do, how do people experience stress and trauma? Trauma and stress are kind of different things. So, you know, you can look at them on a continuum, but with trauma, when it's not resolved, we get trapped in a past experience and we experience things in the present as triggering emotions or sensations from the past. And so what happens with trauma is we, we literally can't be present because the present is intolerable because it connects us to something that was intolerable. And it's hard to find evidence that things are okay when the nervous system is in a constant fight flight you're experiencing things that trigger a memory mm-hmm. that is painful or uncomfortable. Yeah, and sometimes it's not even a, we're not even aware that we're having a memory. It can just be a sensation or a feeling. And we think, well, what's happening now is what's bothering me. But actually what's happening now is a rem- reminds us of something else, but we're not even aware. And is this something that's uniquely human? You know, a lot of my training was with um, Peter Levine, who developed somatic experiencing, who actually is a medical biophysicist. And, and he found that animals in the wild are not showing signs of trauma, even though they're constantly threatened by predators. But domesticated animals are, and humans are. And so I think that, I think so, that yes, it, it is uniquely human. And is that because we have some sort of consciousness or awareness or, you know, more developed intellectual brain that essentially supersedes or transcends that reptilian brain, which is very much connected to fight or flight. Exactly. We have this huge neocortex. It's three-fifths of the human brain. And, you know, it can say to us, like, why are you feeling that way? That doesn't make sense. Stop, right? Whereas the animal in the wild isn't like, oh, my God, they're going to think I'm weird because I'm shaking or whatever. We can observe ourselves. And that's a gift, right, to be able to observe. And sometimes it's a limitation to not just be fully connected to our instincts and our impulses. Right. And so how do embodied and spiritual practices help us kind of process trauma? They help us reconnect to our body and reconnect to what I like to call our wildness, and in many ways, we've been civilized out of our capacity to heal. We're supposed to be civilized. And so, you know, when life happens, sometimes we shake, we tremble, we cry, we, we do things that might feel embarrassing based on social standards. Um, embodied practices can help us reconnect to sensations, emotions, impulses in a way that's not overwhelming. And they can be great for trauma survivors who are over- overwhelmed by their own inner state. 
Yeah, in a way, it's sort of licensed shaking. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I've heard you um, give examples of animals that essentially engage in different kinds of physical activities post stress or post trauma. Mm-hmm. You know, they, there's a there's an interesting video of um, a polar bear where the the scientists have to they shoot the polar bear with a tranquilizer because they're they've got to tag it or whatever. And when the polar bear is coming out of the tranquilizer, it shakes and shakes and shakes. And then it gets up and walks off. And once in a while, they have a bear that doesn't do the shaking. And those bears actually don't survive back out in the wild. So, you know, animals, whether it's that example or an attack by another animal, will shake and tremble and discharge the energy. And in discharging the energy, they're actually completing the fight-flight impulse that they never were able to complete in real life. Um, And then so that that event is done and it's gone because they've completed the impulses necessary. Right. So when we go through a traumatic or stressful experience and then it sort of resolves, like someone takes care of it for us or whatever happens, but then we don't then discharge that energy from our nervous system, does that trauma then get literally stuck in our bodies? Is that what happens? Yeah. The energy gets trapped in the body and then... You know, our bodies want to heal, so we're going to look for times to release it. But then what happens is we we make mistakes. We think, okay, I should release it now. I'm, I'm home with my partner and they're being really annoying. I'm going to scream at them, right? <laughs> Versus actually this was energy meant for something else. There is an interesting story about these 12 young boys that got caught in the bottom of a well and they froze. They were overwhelmed. They were trapped. But two of the boys dug and they dug everybody out. And the two boys who dug did not show signs of trauma. They didn't have, you know, nightmares or anxiety or panic. But the 10 who didn't dig did have symptoms because they never got to physically do anything to escape. Wow. And so are there things that we can do to deal with situations that are stressful or potentially traumatic? I mean, like, I mean, this sounds very, like, plebeian, but, like, go for a run, engage in mm-hmm. physical activity mm-hmm. um, in a way to just discharge that energy from our bodies. Is that something you recommend? Absolutely. I mean, I think any form of, form of movement can be discharged. It's limited if we're not actually connecting to our bodies. So if you're running, but you're sort of unconscious, it, it can feel good just for that moment. But the next day it's all back again. Right. So we want to connect the physical with actually sensing our bodies and our sensations. Um, I remember years ago having somebody come, come to me for therapy and he was a runner and he was, he would run every marathon every year for the last 20 years and his body was falling apart. And at one point I just kind of looked at him and I, I knew he'd shared he had an abusive father. And I just said, what are you running from? No matter how many marathons he ran until he connected it to the emotion, it wasn't going to matter. You see a couple different sort of archetypal reactions to stress or, or to trauma. I mean, I generally just get, I get very tired and I kind of, um, I semi like shut down. That's the way I deal with it. But I see other people, they have other kinds of reactions. Yeah. Well, you know, I like to call it the on and the off people. It's kind of like the electrical wiring in the house. If you get a big surge of electricity, either the surge protectors shut everything off. And so you off people, you'll sleep, you know, you'll shut down. Yeah. But on people like us, we're like, we're running, we're making spreadsheets, I'm sweeping the house, you know. <laughs> but they're both signs of stress. 
<laughs> my husband's an off. We're usually drawn to the person who's opposite to us. Okay. Yeah. So he's just watching movies. He's somewhere. in back watching movies. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm bringing him <laughs> budgets for the next five years of our life. <laughs> <laughs> that works out pretty good. Totally. But that's generally an indication that you haven't processed or you haven't used some of the tools that are available to you to discharge some of that energy. So. Yeah, it's an indication that we've accumulated too much. We haven't metabolized it. So the way to metabolize the stress energy is usually through embodied practices, as well as you know mind-body practices. It has to be connected to our emotions and our thoughts. And then it's like it's kind of like cleaning your house. Like if you just kind of clean up as you go along, things are going to be kind of good. But if you never clean, you know, <laughs> all of a sudden one day you open your eyes and you're like, oh my gosh, you know, this is a big job. I went and I saw um, Byron Katie last week, who is a just wonderful woman and incredible teacher. She had a great quote, you can't hurt me, that's my job. <laughs> but just kind of unpacking that a little bit, you know, there is a lot of suffering. And, you know, trauma, I think, has come into more of the, the national discussion around PTSD, and um, and our soldiers, you know, coming back, you know, whether that's from Iraq or Afghanistan, and now there's a little bit more medical research to actually diagnose PTSD. Is it possible for people that have endured just the worst kind of abuse and torture to process that trauma and live contented, happy lives? Is that possible? I, I think it is. Um, I have seen people who survive things that are unimaginable, um, come out on the other side. You know, I like to say trauma doesn't just break you, it can turn you into a superhero. And it's really, really important because otherwise we sort of um, sentence trauma survivors to being broken forever. And, and we know from the research that actually people that have no trauma look really anxious and depressed. You know, if you haven't been through anything difficult, you don't know you can get through difficulty and that's traumatic. <laughs> you know, part of being okay is knowing you can handle the bad stuff. So um, Kelly McGonigal over at Stanford has done some research around that. And, you know, too, too little life challenge also is, is, can, can be detrimental. And I think, I think people are superheroes. I think people turn the, the most difficult situations into the most incredible opportunities. Yeah, that those things can be your greatest teacher. Absolutely, absolutely. So connect for me embodied practice and leadership. Why are these practices so important for stepping into your capacity to lead? As a leader, um, if we're not in relationship with our own, not just our own trauma, but our own privileges, our own advantages, if we don't have that awareness of ourself, we're going to be playing out all that unconscious material with the, with the world. The stakes are higher if you're in a leadership position. You're going to be impacting more people. And then if you're a leader and you're interested in working in places where there has been trauma, it's really important to have your own practice, A, for self-care. Uh, there's a term called vicarious trauma where we're going to pick up on the traumas that we are witnessing and hearing about. And B, we might unconsciously do harm if we're not aware, right? If we're not managing our own rage, or our own grief, our own dissociation, whatever comes up for us, if it shows up in our leadership because often we might be in a position of power. Um, I, I think of embodied practices as practices of self-accountability and self-care. 
And if you're a leader, it's especially important you do that because you're impacting other people. Yeah, I mean, you've been around a lot of leaders and have engaged in a lot of leadership yourself around social justice. I wonder, do you feel that leaders are instinctively attracted to leading in areas that are connected to their trauma yeah, or the opposite? <laughs> no, I do. I think that like for me, I came from trauma, right? So I am really interested, you know, in working with people around trauma to decrease violence in the world because that's an embodied experience that I've had. So I think that our life experience shapes off. I mean, I've seen leaders all over the place, whether it's like someone whose, you know, child died of cancer, starts a foundation to work with families, you know, or uh, some of the survivors of the mass shootings are starting nonprofits. Going in and, and helping is a great way to actually heal from our own traumas. The problem becomes if we're not at all addressing our trauma and we're just simply wanting to address it out there, we risk, again, either burnout, self-harm, or harming others. You know, I've seen leaders who aren't doing this work become the problem they wish to eradicate. They become bitter. They become divisive. They become polarized, you know, within their own community. So these practices are are absolutely vital. Yeah. I have a friend, Nick Ortner, who is, um, he is a master tapper. He's an emotional freedom mm. technique. And um, he lives in Newtown, Connecticut. So he was there at the Sandy Hook tragedy. And on the back of that, he was like, I'm, I'm right here. And what I offer is relief from, from trauma. Um, and, you know, at first very naively, but he, he essentially became sort of a first responder mm. for the victims in his own hometown. But that actually got him thinking about what if there was sort of a team of first responders that could go and work with local clinicians wherever things happen to essentially address acute needs. And so he did put together a group that then went to Parkland right after the shooting in Parkland That's and worked great. with the local clinicians there to provide an extra layer of services for kids and families to process. And I wonder if that's something that you've ever thought about, um, of like, how do we actually scale some of these tools and techniques and provide them for as many people as possible, given kind of all the incredible challenges that yeah. exist in our world? Yeah, and th that so many of these tools are actually so simple. Right, They're you don't so need much. So simple. Yeah. There's actually an amazing toolkit called Capacitar, created by a woman named Pat Kane, and she's been working with um, victims of political violence for 30 years. They've trained thousands and thousands of people. They were in Rwanda, they were down in South and Central America, and they have it, you know, they have this toolkit translated into 27 languages, and it's tapping, it's breath work, it's the most simple of things, and her whole model is this public education. This does not have to be just in the realm of clinicians and people with all this education. We can teach this to each other. These are very simple tools. Right, you don't need fancy devices no. or... And fancy really, yeah. degrees. I mean, yeah. you know, if we make these tools too elite, then there's no purpose to them. They need to be accessible to everybody. Right. Who are some of your key teachers along the way that you could recommend for other people that are, you know, looking to build some of these skill sets? Yeah. I mean, for sure, Peter Levine with Somatic Experiencing, um, Bessel van der Kolk, um, who wrote a beautiful book called The Body Keeps the Score. You know, his work is great. And he does a lot of connecting yoga with trauma. 
I would say in terms of the trauma work, um, Pat Ogden, Pat Kane, who I just mentioned with Capacitar, and, and her resources are available to anybody to download online. But, you know, those have been my, my big influences in terms of the trauma work. Yeah, and where are you focused right now? And, and as you think towards the, the second half of your yeah, <laughs> this next phase. life, um, you know, what's, what's the legacy that, that you want to create for yourself? You know, phase two is coming with this next PhD that I'm getting <laughs> <laughs> um, in community psychology um, with an emphasis in liberation studies and eco-psychology. And I really see this next phase as taking a lot of the one-on-one and small group work I've been doing and thinking about entire communities. I've been working with direct service providers and schools and educators on practicing these self-regulation and self-awareness skills so that they can address things like implicit bias and trauma. We just piloted a program at Title I, two Title I schools here in LA. So I'm, I'm really interested in looking at these sort of groups and systems of people and helping build cultures that are trauma-informed and culturally competent. That's super interesting. I, I interviewed a gentleman who is, I think, considered sort of the world's expert on forgiveness. Uh, his name is Robert Enright. He's been a um, professor at the University of Wisconsin in Madison for like 35 years of studying forgiveness. And most of his early work focused on self-forgiveness and forgiveness and reconciliation between one person and another. Um, but now he's started to focus his energy on this notion of group forgiveness. And exactly like how you said, essentially institutionalize forgiveness. And because he's, you know, then traveling around the world and he's going to places like in Northern Ireland or all over Africa, where there's like essentially generations of deep-seated anger that is often attributable to like mass genocide. I mean, horrible, awful circumstances that then gets perpetuated generation over generation. And what he's trying to do is go into institutions, governmental institutions, educational institutions, uh, hospitals, all the kind of institutions and be able to essentially institutionalize group forgiveness. I love that. Um, but, it's, but it's hard because no one has paved a lot of this work, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, you can look at the truth and reconciliation process in South Africa as like one model of bearing witness and truth telling and forgiveness. And, and we need more of that. And because what, you know, what happens is unresolved trauma in large groups gets encoded as culture. Right. And so then you, it, it feels like it's just in the bedrock of the culture, but it's actually trauma. So, you know, yeah, I love that. And I think in disrupting trauma and rebuilding culture is one of the unfortunate tasks that we have in our lifetime. Yeah. I mean, in the last couple of years, at least in this country, it's, uh, you know, the scab has been sort of ripped off a lot of social justice issues, race issues, gender issues. It is a time right now that begs for leadership. It begs for people who were perhaps numb or complacent or busy to step forth and bend the arc of history. Mm -hmm. What would you say to people that know that they have an inner leader, but for one reason or another, they don't feel confident enough to step forward or they feel paralyzed in the face of the enormity of the problems? Whatever it is, what is that call to action to get more people uh, on the front lines? And, And people are stepping up. 
Yeah. But but yeah. what is that call? You know, I would say like for folks that are overwhelmed, figure out what your piece is. You're not going to fix all of it, right? And if everybody does their piece and everybody's piece might feel small to them, but if everybody does their piece, then, then we can really change the course of history. Um, I would also say leadership can look many, many different ways. And a lot of us think about leadership as that we're the person up front. But, you know, you know, I'm friends with Julia Butterfly Hill, who, you know, sat in a tree for two and a half years. But, you know, she, she's the one that gets all the attention. But there were hundreds of people, like, sending her meals and calling the press and bu- building her, you know, her, you know, place where she was staying. It took all those people are leaders as well. Right. So I would say, you know, your leadership can be an extension of who you are. You don't have to change your personality to be a leader. Yeah. And I think that that's such a great point as it pertains to leadership. Because, yeah, you don't necessarily have to be the person, you know, standing on top of the steps with the megaphone. Exactly. Um, There's so many ways to contribute and local ways. Yeah. And especially these days, I I do think transformation is going to happen bubbling up from the grassroots So the more that we have small groups of people on the ground, caring for each other, being vocal about the issues that they're passionate about, that's how I think things are going to change. And for sure, for some people, their leadership is going to look like, you know, them standing with a megaphone, go for it. But we just have, I think, too many budding leaders who don't perceive themselves that way. Like we need folks doing the spreadsheets. We need, we need to feed people and we need to nurture people. There's a lot of important roles. Yeah. What, what would you say are the most prescient, the most salient issues facing our country and our world today? Oh boy, deep breath. Yeah. The umbrella for me is dominator culture, that, that we need to disrupt this culture of domination, whether we're dominating nature, other people, other genders, other races, our own bodies. How do we shift from that into a culture of collaboration and mutuality? I think that overwhelm is one of our biggest obstacles. And so how do we figure out how to come out of overwhelm to the the extent that we can? I think we need to figure out how to all get along. And are, are there examples that you can draw inspiration from where that actually is happening? Michelle Alexander, who's the author of The New Jim Crow, said that this is something that's never been done before. There's something about this time, about the way that we're being called to live amongst, with difference, um, that feels fairly unique. I can look around in my world and say that I see it. You know, I can see folks with, from, you know, different races, different ethnicities and gender identities being close and loving each other. That's definitely my small world that I run in. I don't think we have a model for this. Yeah. I mean, what I wonder... And I ask myself this question every day is that can we as a world and as a society re-embrace the notion of the common good? Yeah. Because we have been living in a world completely dominated by individual materialism for two generations, maybe three. I think what you've generally seen is the slow march um, of building picket fences around your house of disconnectedness in the name of individual advancement. And this country was born out of the notion of sort of brokering that relationship between the individual and the common good. That there was actually an opportunity for anyone that would work hard and apply themselves to the promise of that dream. And I think we've seen, at least in our country, different levels of willingness or different paradigm shifts that have embraced that. I think, you know, you saw coming out of the Great Depression, a swing back towards 
the realization that the common good was really important, mm-hmm. that a chicken in every pot was actually something that was a good idea, that bringing seven or eight million GIs back to um, get college education and pay for that was a good idea because that was going to help all of society and that we were connected. And if, you know, my kid can read, but my neighbor's kid can't, then that's not okay. Yeah. And I think it is the foundation of what this country was meant to be built on. It's just that not everybody was included in that, right? In the we and then the who deserves that. And so how do we expand that sense of who deserves that? And I do, I feel like we have the possibility. I'm super optimistic. I'm super, I do think that on a, on a big level, you know, things are being revealed. Sometimes I, I, I like to think that, you know, things aren't getting worse, they're getting revealed. And the more people that are awake, especially the people who've been, been okay, like you said, they're uncomfortable, they're awake now, and we can work together to change things. We have the power to resolve our traumas with mindful embodied practices. If we do this work, we can not only break free from our past and find more happiness in our present, but this work ripples outward. Healing ourselves makes us better equipped to heal the world. There's lots more where this came from in our course, Redefining Leadership. So check it out at onecommune.com. Thanks for listening to the Commune Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Krasno, and I'll see you next week. Thank you.